Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Where are you coming from in this one? Your 100% essential download. Jim White and Simon Jordan. You let this get out of control. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Hi there, you're listening to Outspoken, the podcast that brings you all the very best bits of our daily talk sports show, White and Jordan. On today's episode, we talk cricket, as a new damning report released today highlights sexism, elitism and racism within the game. Plus, we're joined in studio by two special guests, Ricky Hatton and Alan Pardew. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard-to-beat. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Let's get on to this cricket situation right away. I'm delighted that uh, TalkSport's uh, cricket editor, John Norman, has joined us in studio. So, uh, John, obviously there is much for us to get into here. Good morning to you. Yeah, well, we're not really um, good morning, is it? So. It's not really, not for the sport that you cover here at TalkSport, John. You have been doing for 10, 15 years plus. A new report has found that cricket in England and Wales is rife with elitism, sexism, racism, to which the ECB have offered an unreserved apology. Um, Let's look at it. Ethnic minority cricketers have regularly experienced discrimination within the sport. Working class people, especially in inner cities, are often denied any access to cricket and public schools have a huge hold over it. On that basis, the report recommends that the MCC should scrap the annual fixtures between Eton and Harrow, as well as Oxford and Cambridge at Lords. And as well as all that, the report has found there is a prevalent culture of sexism in cricket, with women hugely underrepresented in positions of power. Before we get to John, the ECB, in the form of their chairman, Richard Thompson, has already stepped up to say sorry. Today's report is a wake-up call for cricket. We must never again exclude anyone on the basis of their ethnicity, gender or social background. On behalf of the ECB and wider leadership of the game, I apologise to anyone who has ever been excluded from cricket or made to feel like they don't belong. Cricket should be a game for everyone and this has not always been the case and we are truly sorry. When the ECB commissioned this report two years ago, we wanted to gather evidence from across the game to truly understand the challenges that cricket needed to address. It is the first and most comprehensive report of its kind in any sport, and we're determined to use these learnings to great effect. This report makes clear that historical structures and systems have failed to prevent discrimination. The ECB will use this moment to reset our sport going much further than previous efforts. Cricket has made mistakes and let people down. Now is the time for the sport to come together 
to stamp out discrimination and to make cricket the most inclusive sport in England and Wales. So that was um, Richard Thompson of the ECB, chairman speaking a short time ago, apologising for the findings of uh, this report, which John Norman, I would suggest, are particularly damaging to the sport, aren't they? Well, yes, I'd say so. I mean, where do you want to begin? Do you want to begin with the elitism? Do you want to begin with the sexism? Or do you want to begin with the racism? I mean, did you think it would be as bad as it is, John? It makes dreadful reading, doesn't it? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Richard Gould was speaking yesterday from the ECB, um, the uh, CEO. He was asked whether he was shocked by the findings. He said he wasn't shocked. And to be honest with you, I'm not particularly shocked either. I have been shocked over the last few years. I suppose we were all expecting something like what we what we read uh, and have been reading. It's a long, lengthy, detailed document that's taken two and a half years to compile, 317 pages. Um, shocked, no. Saddened, yes. I suppose some of the individual, um, uh, individual experiences which I'm reading for the first time have shocked me to read in print. You know, how... Anything specifically? Asian players being called terrorists on the field of play. And when they've complained, um, nothing has happened on the field. When the complaint was taken to the chair of the opposing team, um, they were accused of defaming the club. Just little little moments like that. Black players um, racially abused on the field. I can't actually... I don't think I'm actually allowed to quote what's in there, so I won't. But essentially racism. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's shocking to read that in print. You know, that certainly brings it home, makes it more... In, uh, individual um, it's easy to get lost in all the stats I suppose and there's, it's a depth of stats as well but there are certain stats that do jump out from the page but yeah yeah, there's a lot to go through John kick it out uh, Tony Burnett is somebody we speak to on a regular basis when um, there are topics like this that emerge in football kick it out doing some work now in cricket and Tony Burnett joins us live Tony good morning to you um so the sport of cricket has big problems, it would appear, Tony, and uh, you and other organisations now are going to presumably turn your attention to those. Ideally, Jim. Yeah, morning, gents. Um, Good morning. Yes, absolutely. I think this is this is a pivotal moment, actually, and um, the evidence is now is now out there. I have to say, it's not uh, obviously new news to us because we've been working with key stakeholders and people like Michael Carberry over the last 18 months to try and understand what's been happening. But uh, I'm really pleased, actually, that, that and we're really pleased that, that all the evidence appears to to have come out in, in the way it has. And so the, the case for change is unequivocal. So we, we are keen now to, to kind of, I suppose, speak to the ECB, work with the ECB to make sure that whatever plans are put in place are the right plans to drive the changes we all want to see. It's about solutions now. How do we take this forward and make things better? I mean, Tony, we've got a kind of cocktail here, none of which is any good to anyone. Elitism, sexism, racism. What do you think needs to be prioritised here? I mean, how do they begin, the ECB, to, to, to even think of tackling this in, in, in a way that's going to bring change? I think some of this stuff is, is about culture and, and, uh, and culture change. And, and that, that's the bit that's going to take time. Uh, and that's the bit that's going to take real uh, concerted effort over a number of years. Some of this stuff, actually, is just about appropriate systems. You know, and I don't mean that to, to try and sound simplistic. So when, when we've got a reporting process around discrimination that doesn't work, that people don't trust, that people don't use, we can we can do work to fix that because we've got experience around it. But when you talk about the the access to the talent pathways, for example, and the influence of private schools, 
the likelihood of you know fifty seven percent of of the, the are most elite players have, have gone through the private school system. And again, that that stuff that Michael and Tom have been talking to us about for eighteen months, unpicking that structure and rebuilding a talent pathway infrastructure is going to be a really interesting and systemic challenge, and it's going to require concerted effort, but also investment. That's not going to be a cheap thing to solve. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Oh, Simon, a welcome change of subject, welcome change of sport. We look at boxing and you find yourself sitting in front of uh, former two-weight world champion Ricky Hatton, who I bumped into yesterday, <laughs> just down the road from here, yeah. and who informed me, I'll be seeing you tomorrow at 10.30. Yeah, just, and you're just, doing just, just that. Just as I jumped out of the taxi, I think, you spoke, you think you're stalking me, mate. I was stalking you, yeah. Ricky. It's great to see you, mate. Um, how is life in general? Um, never been better, you know what I mean. Um, I'm following um, the greatest football team up and down the country. I'm lifting trophies, so uh, that's good. And I've I've just recently done um, a little bit of a, a legends tour where we've been up and down the country. Me, Frank Bruno, Nigel, Ben, and Joe Kawasaki, where we've been, uh, you know, speaking to fans and doing the questions and answers and that. Which that has been fantastic. I've, I've been on the, the the speaking circuit for a good while, but it's the first time. Uh, that the you know the, the 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 four of us have all been on the stage together and you know to hear each other's stories even though we've we've been friends for a while to hear all the stories has been absolutely fantastic so I've been uh, I've been a very uh, busy chap here. Brilliant. I mean, you, I know for a fact you've become a prominent ambassador for a host of mental health charities, including CAM. We'll get to that in a second. The world of boxing. At the moment, it seems this man and I are always talking about fights that we want to see happening. But the promoters cannot seem to be able to make them happen. And of course, the big one that we all want to see, we might not ever see, Fury Joshua. Have you got any, any idea as to why that is? Why are promoters not making the fights we want to see? I don't know, I mean, what a tragedy for our sport that would that would be. And I know, you know, the, the entertainment business and, and the boxing world has, has changed so much over the years you know when you know we've got youtubers fighting you know mixed martial arts we've got mixed martial arts fighting rappers we've got rappers fighting you know what i mean and these fights you know they need to be made for the for the sake for the sake of our sport you know what i mean it's hurting our sport that mm. these fights aren't going to happen i remember back in the day you know you won your title you got a certain amount of dates to defend it otherwise you got stripped do you know what i mean and now it's like you know when was the last time we saw AJ and, and, and Tyson in the ring? It, was, it must be around about Christmas, wasn't it? You know, something like that. You know, so it's, it is hurting our sport, but um, there's it, a big fight in the States. You know, you know um, Crawford and Spence has been made. I think that was a fight that's been not been made forever in a day, but they've finally made it. Yeah. So that one sort of like fills me with a little bit of hope that they've made that fight now. Hopefully we're going to get the AJ and, and um, AJ and Tyson Fury fight. Or... The AJ usage or Tyson usage, I think it needs to be made for the sake of our sports because I think, you know, these, you know, people that, you know, rappers can fight YouTubers and get bigger crowds <laughs> and bigger purses, you know, and our, sport, our sport's getting it's left behind, isn't it? Simon, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It is, isn't it? I mean, it's only the heavyweight division, though. Yeah. It's the, I mean, and unfortunately, that's the marquee division, but that's the division that the Saudis want. And the Saudi money is the one that's creating the division in people. You just saw Tank Garcia, uh, Tank Davis versus Ryan Garcia with no belts on the line. Yeah. As Ricky quite rightly says, you know, you've got Crawford versus Spence, which are two pound for pounds. And so there is an opportunity to do it. It's the heavyweight guys where the money comes from and the risk profile and the Saudi uh, distortion. And when you see his career, I mean, I was fortunate enough to go and watch him a few times. I watched him fight Costa Zoo in Manchester. I watched him fight in Boston, fight, fight, fight Luis Colosa to win his WBA belt. 
Um, and these guys fought. He fought Pacquiao. You know, he fought Mayweather. He fought the best of the best. But the welterweight division has often done that, hasn't so it? Do you think it's... Is it the fighter's attitude now? Or, you know, cause, or is it because we're old school or, or anything like that? When you think, you know, Davis and Garcia fought each other, not for belts... Oh, you know, and sometimes, you know, some fighter doesn't make the weight, you know, you, the, the fight still happens, it's just mm. not for the title. Where's yeah. the value of being the best in the world, gone? Yes. As long as you've got the money, that's as long, good, as, as, long as the money comes. But, you know, that, that's all that people seem bothered about. I think that's a brilliant attitude, but when you start to talk, I think there's an entourage around boxers now that commercialise boxers and say, right, I, you know, I'm not going to put you in this fight. Like Anthony Joshua going to fight Dillian White, he wants a rematch clause in there, ultimately. This is not even for a belt. But because the commercial commodity of Anthony Joshua is yeah. so valuable yeah. for the opportunity that exists in Saudi, the guys around him go, well, we're not going to put you in a fight about a rematch clause because you are an opportunity for us to make a huge amount of money. We shouldn't put you in that situation. So it all comes down to money. And I'm in your camp, which is what happened to the heavyweight division where Ken Norton fought Joe Fraser, Joe Fraser fought Muhammad Ali, yeah. Muhammad Ali fought George Foreman, and they all fought Ernie Shavers, and they all fought these guys because that's what the boxing world was about. And it's, it's like the UFC, isn't it? Or mixed martial arts, whatever. One one champion, in it? You know, it, it's... And and I know the, the, the... I mean, I think the fact that there's more belts in, in boxing, you know, is better for the boxers because more belts gives more opportunities more chance for them you know to, to make to make a few a few quid yeah but you know the, the best should be made to fight the best and you know i mean I, and i appreciate you know it's how you make your living and negotiations is a is a very important part of of what happens because when i fought floyd you know what i mean you know if i'm fighting floyd mayweather i want the best deal i can get absolutely but it, but yeah, but of it, course, it, course. But, you know you don't want to cut your nose off despite your face. You know, you yeah. get a little bit too greedy, you want a little bit too much, you might lose it completely. You yeah. know what I mean? Of course, so- Ricky, big big fights bring legacies. Now, there's been a big debate in the sport recently. Carl Froch uh, kicked it all off by claiming that AJ doesn't have one, doesn't have a legacy. What defines a boxing legacy for you? Is it being able to sell out a stadium? Is it the big fights you had? I think it's... Um- it's obviously winning the winning the world titles, and I mean, and it's the fights you're involved involved in, and not necessarily you know the the you know, winning the fights. It's sometimes how you win them, and I think you know greatness is um, is judged. You know, Muhammad Ali was was known as the greatest for for things beyond boxing, for other things you know like that, and arguably the best one of the the greatest of all time. They say he's Floyd May- Mayweather. Do you know what I mean? You know, um, and he, you know that probably is right, but. Um, you know, what's the point of being the greatest in the world if everyone if everyone thinks you're an idiot? You know, Floyd is you know <laughs> you know you know Floyd you know is the greatest in that boxing ring, but as a person, as a as a as a product and everything like that, I won't give him the time of day. Do you know what I mean? You Even know, it, yeah, I think it's just you know what what's he doing fighting YouTubers, Geordie Shaws, and you know I mean, and no disrespect intended to them. You know what I mean? I just think you know you're the greatest of all time, and you're yeah. having you know. I mean, I mean he doesn't need anyone because he's flying Mayweather. He's right. I get that. Ricky but, fought you know. the great Barrera recently because they were both great yeah. fighters and still are. But legacies are strange things because they operate in the space of whoever decides which one, what legacy. Joe Kazaki doesn't get the credit that he should get because Joe Calzaghe didn't court or didn't have the personality that certain people have. Yeah, and a domestic rival such as Nigel and Chris had. Yeah, 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 possibly. But, I mean, ultimately, a legacy is something that means you've been in with the best, you've achieved things that other people can't achieve, and you've never ducked anybody. I think that's what a legacy is. Yeah. I think he's got a legacy. I think beating Costa Zoom in the manner that he did, winning the WBA belt the way that he did, and going and fighting these other two guys, Pacquiao 
and Mayweather, he may well have lost, but notwithstanding that, look at the look at the support he brought with him, look at the outlook he brought into the ring, look at the disposition that he had, look at the challenges that he overcome, look at the things he achieved, and look at who he ducked. Nobody. That means, and he won world titles as well. That yeah. means there's a full yeah. package there. It's, That's it, a legacy. It's That's right. a legacy. Does AJ not have a legacy? Um, no, I think he does. I think, uh, you know, he, he, <clears throat> he started off started off the sport young he won an Olympic gold medal you know he became the you know the undisputed champion of the world he'd lost it he regained it um, he's lost two fights two fights on the bounce but to Usage, who was an Olympic gold medalist undisputed cruiserweight champion undisputed heavyweight champion um, so you can't say that AJ's not mixed and you know I think he's I think the story's not finished yet I think he, he, he has got a legacy but I think it's exciting to see how much how much bigger that legacy can get if the right fights you know I made I mean if, if if nothing happens from here on in he's cemented himself he's made his name and everything like that but I mean you know what he, what he did with Klitschko when he when he won the title that was a great fight he was involved mm. in you know what I mean he, you know he's come back from adversary he lost to Ruiz he come back and regained the title so there is I think it is a little bit unfair to say there's not a legacy there I just think there's a little bit more to come from AJ uh, and it, well if he fights oh, God, Wilder could, could be a bit more to come if he up. fights Wilder later in the year Ricky does he come through that oh my lord you know that you'd pay you'd pay to watch that wouldn't you absolutely do you know what I mean but, does he win uh, it uh, it's in the heavyweight division um as we know, anything can, anything can happen, can't you? But I mean, when we look through the the heavy big punching heavyweights through history, you know, you think like your Ernie Shavers and your your George Foremans and that. Wilder, it technically might not be, you know, but he he's up there with them. You know what I mean? And you know, when AJ, you know, has been knocked down a few times, he has been stopped by Ruiz and like that. And I think sometimes with, with the punching power that Wilder has, you know, he only needs to. He only needs to get one, oh, yeah. or even even the draft if he missed. Yes, <laughs> you know he punches that. <laughs> he punches that it's hard. Nice but you know AJ, you know can can hit himself, and he's technically better than than Wilder. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you know it's you toss you toss a coin. But I tell you what, that that would be good for our sport. That would be good for you. I'd pay to watch that. I right. get up at five in the morning to watch that one. Hard edged, hard nosed, hard to. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Outspoken with White and Jordan. We have been joined in studio by former West Ham Newcastle Crystal Palace manager Alan Pardew. It is a while since I've seen you, sir. How are you? I'm very well, Jim. Thank you. I'm good. You're looking great. You're looking well. Uh, you guys go back a bit? Yeah, our paths have sort of crossed briefly at certain times. One of the first games that my team, when I first bought Palace, was against his Reading in a pre-season friendly when he beat us 4-0, which I wasn't particularly impressed with. We used to make Steve Cobble yeah. Martin yeah. Allen and you yeah. standing on the touchline, yeah. reminding me of how much, Could, how little backbone my team had. Oh, really? Yeah. Could have been more. Different words than you believe Well, Alan. actually, I, was, uh, I do remember that very well because you come and stood behind Steve Cobble that day. I did. And uh, I, did. I actually thought, oh, dear. Didn't look good, you know. I said, to "Steve, all right? Well, you're all right. You know, you two, is it all everything okay?" <laughs> it's all sent out. The answer was no. The old alarm bells, yeah. So and what were you doing behind Coppel? You no, were. No, I was watching the game. It was it was at the training ground. It was behind yeah. closed doors, and I just remember him and his and and, and the description about our side. I think Martin Alling told me at a later stage that you guys viewed us as having no. It was a particular word I can't use on air, but no backbone. <laughs> you can imagine what the word was. Well, that's Martin Allen. That wasn't yeah. me. Well, hang on a second. <laughs> I, I, I do have that, and I'm not quite sure why my team and my manager don't. But you know, myself and Coppel just had different views. Yeah, yeah, different views. He's owners. He's owners. What as well, he's, what are you going to yeah. do? Listen, no, what are different. you going to do? Because you're back now. After taking jobs abroad, you were in Greece. You 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 were with Ten Hag in Holland technical director and then manager at CSK Sofia in Bulgaria. I mean, where are you at now after getting all that kind of experience, after being vastly experienced here? Mm. Well, I have to say, after the West Brom job, where I was, I've got to be honest, I, I felt I was let down there uh, in more ways than one in terms of how the club and the, and the playing staff and everything, how it went. It just didn't work. I just felt I needed a break. I wanted to take something completely different. But I'm a kind of guy that can't sit still, so I needed to work. So I thought I'd just have a little look across Europe, if I'm honest. And I didn't really sort of plan it or anything. I just sort of said I'll be open to offers. Then I'll come. They were really struggling. I took Chrissy Powell there with me. Yeah, yeah. And we enjoyed that at the start. And then we found some difficulties there. The team was struggling a little bit. And then, um, so that didn't uh, that didn't kind of... Manifesto because COVID kicked in. So we kind of had to leave that job. Uh, and then I got this offer to do sporting director in, in uh, CSK Sofia. Bulgaria. Yeah. Where I, I obviously. Like? Well, it was bizarre because uh, I knew of them because of their dealings in Europe. You know, I remember them as being a great big club, of yeah, course. Yeah. Um, and they said to me, look, would you like to do this sort of technical director's role? And I was, okay, well, that's interesting to me because then I'm kind of then stuck between. Simon, the owner and and the manager, which obviously I've been, so I thought so that'd be a good experience for me to do that, and I have to say I enjoyed it. Although, you know, some of the stories that I could tell out of Bulgaria, uh, you know, are, is it know, crazy? I mean, I've heard it's crazy. It's, what's what's the maddest thing about it? Well, their passion and and uh, everything for the game is the same as England. They just do it. It's just in different ways that they show it, and sometimes not in the right way, as you'd imagine. Yeah. And um, you know, and we had that incident, uh, unfortunately, at the end, uh, which scarred it all. When we had this kind of uh, a racial incident, um, where the team were attacked, or the black players in the team, the African Caribbean players were attacked, 
And uh, you know, in the end, uh, we, where was this on the field of player? And this was, a, this was on the on, this was on an eve of a game. Yeah, we would we had lost the cup final, and uh, they sort of decided that uh, they were to blame, and uh, so it was difficult. Um, but the club were great to me, uh, and I enjoyed my time there, um, and it was different. Um, and then um, after that, I decided to take a job in Greece, and that probably wasn't a great decision. Because <laughs> uh, that wasn't quite as enjoyable as CSK, but I think that whole process was about me trying to see if it's different, what's different about it, different cultures. Can you still do the learning process and without speaking the language? Yeah. So it answered a lot of questions for me, and it also I think enhanced me as a manager in terms of how to deal um, with what would have been a non-speaking dressing room. Yeah, of course, of course. Does it all come down to trust, Alan? If you feel, you know, like this fellow was a, a, a an owner who really put his heart and soul into his football mm. club, a club that you you know and love as well. Yeah, and I thought every manager would have thought would want to give Simon everything that he, he possibly could. In countries like Greece and Bulgaria, is trust a bit thin in the ground at clubs like that? Well, the owners have a lot more say than than in than in England for sure. And, um, and in what way they want to pick the team? Well, I wouldn't say they want to pick the team, but they they the the process of players in particular, they they feel that they can punish players, um, and that players should be punished. So, for example, punished. Yeah, when I say punished, you know, like rather than I don't know, if you was in England and you lost the game, the owner might get on the phone to you on a Sunday, or Simon might have picked up the phone on Sunday and say, "Look, what do you need? You know, that was like awful yesterday." It's awful. What do you need? What do you know? What do you, what do you want to need to get, you know, to happen this week? Do you want to get someone in? Do you want to try something with a team? Do you want to do a night out? What, you know, something positive. In in Greece and Bulgaria, it was very much they need to be punished. They need to be in morning and afternoon. I'm expecting you to be training them in the evening. Blah blah blah. And you know that. You know, when you've got a group of players that are. Uh, Perhaps not on the sort of finances that you were lucky enough to have in England. Even in, I'm not talking about Premiership, I'm talking about Championship mm, level. Mm. Um, players are, uh, are really kind of under the power of the owner. They really fear the owner for their for their money, for their careers. Sometimes they stop their money. They stop some of the players' money, for really? example. Yeah, just stop paying them. Yeah, stop paying them, and uh, or the, your payments late, you know, and stuff like that. And as a manager, that is a that is a really difficult situation to be in when you're in a dressing room trying to get the best out of players, trying to lift them. You know, that's that's what a good coach manager should do, <laughs> be able to motivate and lift. Under that scenario, it's very difficult, as you imagine. Wow. I mean, it, it, I, I, listening to, to Alan there, I can imagine how nuts it gets overseas. And you would go into, Alan would go into that with his eyes open, Simon, but there must be some pretty darn crazy owners out there with totally different agendas. Yeah, I guess there is. I mean, there's a balance, isn't there, between facilitating a solution to a problem and consequencing those that have provided the problem. And if you're an owner that's sat there and players haven't done what they should do, if it's because you've gotten beaten, the better side has beaten you and it's been an unfortunate set of circumstances, it's unreasonable behaviour. I mean, the Italians are very similar. They believe in the principle of players. If games are lost and teams haven't done very well, I mean, you can look at some of the owners in, in Italy and they have a very similar view. 
I mean, you can look at the owners of Watford, they have a similar view about the manager, but that's a different dynamic completely. <laughs> mm. um, but it's a balance, isn't it, between... I mean, I don't think owners should be particularly near playing squads. I, I didn't want to be anywhere near mine, because what's the point of having him? I don't need him. There's no, there's no, there's no mixed metaphors or mixed messages. He's paid a lot of money to manage the players. Yeah, and you so, prefer it that way anyway, Alan. So they should be of left course. to do their jobs. Yeah, and, um, you know, the ownership contact that I've had it all across all my clubs... Has all been different, been very, very different, you know, in terms of their integration with players. The, the new chairman, uh, who's after Simon, is Steve Parrish, of course, has dealt Steve quite close to the players, mm. and they, he likes that. That's uh, that's just the way he is personally. Uh, Mike Ashley was complete opposite; hardly got involved with players at all. So you get that different, and you, as a manager, you kind of have to adjust to the owner of, you know. You have to kind of accept what they want to do or accept some of their decision-making or their process uh, and, and bring it into your management. And sometimes mm. you get somebody in the middle who's a technical director, yeah. which I had at Sophia uh, at Seske, and I was in that role. And I actually like that role. I think that's an important role because you're trying to get the message even. You know, you can absorb some of the nasty message from the owner that perhaps the manager doesn't need to know, yeah. uh, but still pass on the message. In a, in a precisely Understood. more football way. I see what you mean. Yeah, when you and I think that's, that... a, and that's a role that, particularly in the Premier League, is very important. I right, it's, a, it's an important role, and I agree with you. When, when you say you were let down at West Brom, by whom and on what? Um, well, I don't think that's... I want to share that on this particular show, if, if I'm honest. I don't want to share it on you any show. You brought it up? Yeah, no, because I, I genuinely feel that. That doesn't mean I have to share it, though. We'll bring it up for them. <laughs> well, because I think that I, I because I, I were you there when the players were behaving badly over in Barcelona? Well, of course, yeah. Was that, that on you though? Well, you, that's the point. You could say was that my 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 or self doing that instant, but I don't think it was in terms of what I was trying to do. New into a football club, trying to bring some camaraderie to the group, trying to bring us together. To make us stronger for the running. And senior players, abu- players abused it, didn't they? Yeah, and, they, and unfortunately, that we had this incident, and actually, f- professional, really good professional guys. And it wasn't so much that mm. particular incident that I, that I mean, it was a massive problem, don't get me wrong. And those guys. It's coming back very to me now. Regretful. I don't know what I mean you're talking about. Yeah. It but it's it, was the alf- it was the art. It was a bonding session or something? No, no, no. We just, it was like uh, we had a night out, but that wasn't the night out. This was a curfew night. This was a night to stay in. I and see. they went out and they saw a police car. Uh, not oh, I remember uh, taxi, it. They stole sorry, a police car, a police, yeah. Not a, police a, ta- car. a taxi, was it? A taxi. Right, right. And, uh, but it wasn't, so much, it wasn't so much um, the incident was bad enough. It was bad enough. Yeah. It was the outcome of the incident with all everybody else, how it all unfolded. Some of the players were really unhappy about it. Some players were like, okay, it's happened. Let's get on with it. And it was as difficult. It was very, very difficult. And I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't enjoy... <laughs> Um, the the ownership of the football club, you know, and it's still the same, you know. That's I, I didn't meet. Had the Jeremy owner, gone then by then, had he? Pardon? Had Jeremy Peace yeah. gone then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can remember Alan. Actually, I do now that you are talking about it, or you're, you're beginning to put a bit of detail on it. I do remember being on Sky at the time and thinking, "What is going on? So where are they? So West Brom, where are they? Where exactly were you again? Where, Barcelona in Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. And I remember here, a group of players have have stolen a taxi. What? And I remember immediately then thinking of you, and I thought, how is he going to deal with being in the middle of all that? Well, you obviously had the, the media backlash of, of that, which is and fans backlash. Can you imagine? Yeah. So, 
but it was so much it was just how we dealt with it in the change room i i, I wasn't happy with it. i didn't think we dealt with it very well right we you know the group got fragmented there was like a, a part of the squad over here and a part of the squad over and I couldn't bring it together yeah. and therefore you're not going to win games well to be fair to you you didn't see anything like that coming no I didn't see anything like that coming I've got to be honest but I'm not totally innocent in the, in, in the process of West Brom because obviously you're the manager it comes down to you and the results weren't good enough but that whole thing manifested itself we weren't in a great team yeah. at that before that incident after the incident we were like really struggling and it was only until I think I got a bit tense around it all and it all got very very tense it, the best thing for everybody was to leave and that was reflected in results after because Darren come in who is the lovely lovely guy who was my assistant and they started picking up results uh, so yeah. there was the talent was there we just uh, yeah, it, the whole thing it just didn't work and that right. when you say to me why you know and I'm saying that's why I was hurt because I couldn't bring it together yeah. so it's more of my pain yeah. of myself as much as anything else 